Kia ora, and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. Kia ora, Rachel. No mai haere mai ki Te Heringa Waka. Welcome to Te Heringa Waka. Um, ngā mihi nui ki a koe mō fifinga. Congratulations on being one of our distinguished alumni for 2021. A really awesome um, achievement. For today's uh, podcast, our kōrero today, I thought it'd be most appropriate to start with yourself and hearing it a little bit about uh, from yourself about who you are and where you've come from to, to get to this point um, in your career and in your life. Oh, kia ora Ben and thank you. Yes, I'm really uh, over the moon to be part of this year's uh, Distinguished Alumni Group. It's a pretty auspicious group of people amongst which I have some friends, so it's a nice year to be to be recognised alongside them. Uh, but ko e au, uh, ko ngāti raukawa ki te tonga, ko ngāti rārua, ko ngāti kōta hoki ngāiwi, ko ngāti huia toku hapu, uh, ko Rachel Tawalei ahau, so... Um, that's me. I hail from the mighty metropolis of Ōtaki, about an hour north of Wellington here, but I reside still here in the city with my husband, uh, Walter, and 16-year-old daughter, Lily. Tēnā koe e te whanaunga, Ngāti Raukawa in the house, which is uh, awesome. <laughs> um, so I have like a bunch of questions here, you know, sort of spanning the different aspects of your career, I suppose. Uh, but I thought, given that this is a podcast uh, for heading a waka for the university, it'd be most appropriate to sort of start uh, with thinking about that university context. So I teach a lot of our first year tauira here at the Heading a Waka, and um, one of the things I've noticed with them when they're in that first year is they often have a lot of uh, angst about choosing the degree or the course of study, and a lot of them seem to be kind of looking for a, a degree that will give them like a really nice, clear, well-defined runway into a very specific career. And I've seen to notice a lot of students choose the law degree. Um, you know, that's a big factor in their reasoning. If I choose a law degree, then I'll become a lawyer. There's a really obvious connection there. And you did a law degree here at the Hiringawaka, and you graduated in 1998, I think it says. 98, my <laughs> lord. Three <laughs> decades ago. <laughs> and correct me if I'm wrong, but since then you've never worked as a professional lawyer in that traditional kind of track, is that right? Yeah, no, I haven't. I thought I might, but, and actually when I got my first job, I came in sort of relatively ungraciously and said to them, you know, thanks for the job, and but I'm going to be a lawyer. But it never eventuated. But I actually wasn't going to do law in the first point anyway. I, I arrived at university on the first day for enrolment and I was ready to do um, pre-med. And I was in line, nearly at the front, and then had this sort of bolt of lightning hit me. And it was, two things happened actually. One is I realised I couldn't do one more second of chemistry, or I would like, my head would blow off my shoulders. And I sort of instantly recognised about myself that I might not have been the most empathetic of people. And I feel like that's a prerequisite when you get into medicine. Like you genuinely have to care about the people you're caring <laughs> for. And so whilst I love the people in my life, I'm not, and you can sort of reference check this with my family, but I don't know if I'm the greatest doctor and or nurse and or general caregiver in that respect. So I shuffled left from the pre-med line into the law line. And that suited me down to the ground. My mother thinks I did it so that I could have a better argument with her. I didn't actually need training for that. Um, but turns out that it did train me in a very specific and great way and shape my mind in ways that I think didn't lead me into law because I happen to think that kind of direct shoot from degree to career, it's a bit of an urban myth, I've got to say. Um, I did think it was for me at the time, but 
also what happened is I was doing the rounds of the um, you know cocktail parties with the law firms, and I'm not sure I even got a look in. <laughs> and in retrospect, I'm not sure why that was, but anyway, it clearly wasn't for me. It was a tohu from the universe, and I was gate crashing at the time a lot of events that my father was participating in with New Zealand Trade and Enterprise as a Māori exporter and the manager of the Māori Enterprise team there said to me, ultimately after crashing about five or six different events, like you're here a lot, maybe maybe you just like a job. And he was the one I said to, well, okay, sure, but I'm actually going to be a lawyer, which is a terrible way to accept your first job offer. Um, however, that's how I went in. <laughs> he took me in as the um, team administrator, which I think I was fairly horrible at because of course I had a law degree so I knew everything. Uh, turns out I knew nothing. But I learnt a lot in a very small amount of time about the benefits of trade and the positivity of it and how you could trade your way into a really positive space. And I'd grown up around business so I should have probably have, had, had a clue about that. But to be a part of that entity was really enlightening and sort of set me out for a, for a life of business. So it wasn't, by the sounds of it, it was all very sort of, I don't want to say accidental, but sort of like serendipitous. It wasn't necessarily, you did actually entertain the prospect of the sort of law career, but then... Oh, I definitely wanted it. I, okay. You know, I really saw myself in that role. Uh, and it's really only on reflection you realise that, the, the, you know, one of the, probably for me, and this isn't for everyone, but the most valuable part of that experience was... Um, really um, the resilience you build through being at university for a number of years and really applying yourself to a school of thought, that being law, and the way that it does shape your thinking and your mind and your ability to hold up the end of a conversation. Um, I did want to be a lawyer. The universe intervened and threw me into the trade space uh, instead, but I've, I've enjoyed that space. And when you look back on like your time here at the Hedingawaka at university, do you have any sort of memories or, or things you look back fondly on that maybe in hindsight prepared you quite well for the career that you did end up having? I think I loved it all, to be honest. I think that if I could go back to university now, I would. I don't want to do any more exams. I just want to be clear that if I went back, I did, there's no sitting exams and needing to pass anything. I did pass everything, although ironically um, not law and commerce, which is interesting that I now am very sort of deep into the commercial world. However... Um, I I think it all sets you up for, you know, all of this, I don't want to say soft skills, but they are, you know, how do you manage your time? How do you manage your interactions with people? How do you um, recognise the value that you have and push forward into opportunities that might show themselves? And I think that I was brought up in a household with a, with a father who said yes to everything. Um, and he still does it. You can barely get the offer out of your mouth. And he said yes before he even knows what the end of it is. But it's a great way to be brought up because then it makes you go into places that are new and sometimes uncomfortable. It pushes your limits. It makes you a little bit, um, you know, feel that sort of feel feel the fear. I'm a big fan of sort of feel the fear and do it anyway. But when you say yes to most things that come your way, you can find yourself in some amazing places. And I think that if you have the confidence to to learn as you go, um, that's a great attribute to try to build as you go through university and then shortly thereafter. And so the next step for you out of university, as you sort of alluded to um, earlier, was NZTE. Um, and you were in that role for a number of years. And I think that took you to the United States, right? It did. I was I was pretty green when I came in. As I said, I did a year here in Wellington with the new exporters in the Māori export team. Then I was moved to Auckland um, still in the Māori Enterprise team, working with Māori exporters. So the role of that agency is really to find a market and a partner for New Zealand export companies. 
And after a couple of years in that role, we had an amazing CEO at the time, Fran Wild, and she has simply said to me, and now you're going to the States. And she was what I would call a, a real champion in my life over the years, somebody who sort of th- throws you into situations because they believe that you have the wherewithal to, to swim. There's a chance you'll sink, but by and large you don't. And there's, you know, they're behind you if you do. So she sent me to the States, and within a year of landing in the US, I, was, uh, I dropped into the role of Trade Commissioner, and I looked after the food and beverage portfolio for the following six or seven years. So that was very formative. I was young. I was 25 when I went over to the States, just myself and my husband. And at the time, California was the fourth largest economy. New Zealand was very well regarded. They had no clue where we were, by and large. But that's okay, because that opened up the conversation for where we were and you know, what we were about, and yes, you can use your credit card in New Zealand. Um, A real fascination with the source of our food products that we did still very much have that sort of clean, green social licence that we actually enjoy now as well, uh, but with a bit more colour now, I'd say. So really lucky to have had that opportunity and spent that time assisting New Zealand companies into that market, and in doing so, watching them uh, and learning a lot of lessons along the way from them as to the good, bad and otherwise. I guess you're probably in a similar boat to a lot of the alumni of Te Heringa Waka and that many people finish their studies here, they might work in New Zealand for a bit and then they head off overseas. Uh, but many of them then, I mean, they'll stay there, but many of them also come back. And I'm sort of curious to hear how your time in the United States, because you were there for quite a while, right? Nearly nine years. Yeah. How did you view... Aotearoa differently when you came back here later on in life after that period? For me, I think it's it's not... For a start, I loved the US and I loved the exuberance of the American people and it's an incredibly diverse country to have been in. So, you know, the number of states is the number of different markets you can go to. But not dissimilar to experience I had a few years ago where I went and spent six weeks at Stanford and uh, had an extraordinary course of study that I undertook but I left thinking, we're okay in New Zealand. Like, we've got this. And I, and I think in the Stanford context in particular, I was thinking about Māori business because in that course were people who, who were running billion-dollar enterprises with tens of thousands of people, um, you know, real moguls and captains of industry. And then and then they would say to me, oh, what do you do? I'm like, oh, well, I run a family business in, in uh, Nelson. And we have wine and hops and um, kiwi fruit and mussels and bits and pieces. So we were a minnow in comparison. But it didn't diminish my view that we in New Zealand and Māori specifically are v- just so far ahead of the curve in terms of the way that we are hardwired and the way that we consider ourselves against people in place that how that shows itself in business is relatively inconsequential because at the end of the day, if you're not a good person, if you don't consider that you have a responsibility to make good decisions now that set you up and your generations to come for a prosperous future, well, it doesn't matter how many dollars you have flowing through your business or how many people you have under your management, you really come up empty. So the time in the States left me thinking, we're small and we're at the edge of the earth, but that's our superpower. And my time at Stanford left me thinking, um, again, (laughs) we're small and we're very, very far away and we don't move your dial, but we're doing things in the right way. Mm. So learnings all the time. Mm. So it's just, I guess, that sort of, I don't know, maybe evaluating what it means to be successful against different, a more holistic set of criteria, would you say? I think so, but I think that's probably my perspective generally. I try to approach the situations 
I find myself in in a relatively egoless way so that you can so you can manage yourself because if you're constantly aspiring to be more or get more or advance more quickly that's tough because you almost never get to that aspired state so I think that um, you have to reach a level of confidence in you and what you're doing and why you're doing it most importantly that keeps you motivated and satisfied and happy on a day-to-day basis. And it's interesting to, I guess, I'm kind of curious to hear how you see that play out because we've talked a little bit about your time as part of uh, a larger organisation with NZTE. We'll talk a little bit more in a second about your time as CEO of Cornor. But I've also seen in your history, Rachel, the sort of entrepreneur, the person wanting to do their own thing and start their own business. Uh, so I think after you had, after your time with NZTE, you had Yellow Brick Road, which was a company you started focused on um, sustainably caught seafood. Um, and I'm curious to see how that, or f- to hear from you, how that sort of, you know, judging success against multiple criteria and reference points, how you've seen that play out in your role as an entrepreneur and how that has kind of impacted your thinking about starting your own businesses and what you want them to achieve. Mm. What I've recognised myself, having just stepped out, as you referenced earlier, into Oho, our new company, is that I love the build of businesses. I love that formative time when you're setting the parameters for your business, who you will work with, how you will work with them, who you won't work with, and how you'll show up as a business and as a person within that business. And so Yellow Brick Road was interesting because I had um, spent all of that time in the States working with other New Zealand companies, and I saw an inordinate amount of uh, work going into the catching, harvesting, and processing of New Zealand food products. And in the market, lots and lots of work that went into the service of those, whether retail or, or into food service. And too much that existed between the two that risked the integrity of it. So I set Yellow Brick Road up to really take the, the chefs, initially in the States, but then latterly in New Zealand, much, much closer to the source of their seafood. And I picked seafood because, one, I love it. Um, so there was no mystery in that. Uh, but also because if you can manage the supply chain for chilled seafood, I mean... The theory was the rest would be a cakewalk. I never left seafood, as it turns out, but uh, working with chilled seafood was a tough one. And I did it at a time, my mother thought I was nuts leaving the role of trade commissioner. You know, it was very secure. It was, you know, we lived in the States and it was all pretty fantastic. But for me, when you're feeling good in a role like that, that's the perfect time to do it because you're feeling confident, you're feeling good about your skills and your ability to build something. So I jumped out of there and into Yellow Brick Road so I could build a new proposition. And so that's the entrepreneurial part. And I think that uh, because I wasn't, I must have been, I don't know, 30-odd, maybe there was a degree of naivety. There might have been. In fact, I'm guaranteed that there was because in my second go around this time, I was much more considered. I think the first time with Yellow Brick Road, I was just up and over and no breaks. Um, But also I saw my dad and mum over the years, they had built a number of businesses themselves. So I guess I had a feel for what that would be and did love it. And you get a bit of a bug when you build a business and you that bug is rewarded when somebody wants to buy it. Well, actually, it's rewarded when somebody wants to buy your first fish, I'll tell you that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's rewarded latterly when somebody wants to buy the whole business, which is what happened with Cornwall. They bought Yellow Brick Road, and I jumped in there as chief executive. So it never really goes away, that entrepreneurial buzz or endeavour, if, if, if it's in you, and it's not in everyone, because it's it can be scary, but it's really exciting. So when you look at Yellow Brick Road, it's interesting to see 
although it's an industry that's very you know um, prominent in New Zealand and Aotearoa, the idea of fisheries and doing that in a sustainable way, it's not necessarily like the first kind of business idea that a lot of people, particularly university graduates, would think of. And I kind of see that with our, our management students now who I teach. Like if you talk with them about entrepreneurship, the first thing I'll think of is like I need an app or something, <laughs> you know. And Yellow Brick Road, and, and actually, and this applies too to I guess your time with Cornell, you're dealing there with almost like the original kind of product of humanity, food and, and drink and, you know, the things that we actually consume and put into our bodies. Um, was that something you came to organically or was that sort of an opportunity you very strategically saw in your time as Trade Commissioner, like with Yellow Brick Road, that you wanted to pursue? The latter. I, I mean, I would say as, a, as an opening premise for starting a business is that you need to be solving a problem. And I know that that is probably one of the core <laughs> tenets of business studies is that when you establish a business, make sure it's solving a problem because you can make as many mid widgets in the world as you wish, but if nobody wants them, it's a fairly futile exercise. So with Yellowbrick Road, the problem that I saw was, as I say, that, that, that we had this amazing story. We had these fishermen who had come through generations of that craft and that applies equally to our farmers or our orchardists or our grape growers. There are decades, if not you know, longer, uh, of people participating in that practice. And they're creating you know, almost one of the most universal desires that we have as a people, and that is food. And what I love about food is that it brings people together in a way that you almost cannot recreate. And so the sharing of food from a Māori standpoint, that, that act of manaki, instantly um, breaks barriers and instantly brings you together and it serves as that platform for story when you put it into the commercial space. So if I could go to the world uh, or, or to our domestic market and tell our chefs, which we did, you know, um, Tom caught this fish and he caught it on uh, this boat that took off out of Lee yesterday and he caught it via long line and look, and here's where you can see that if you wish to. That, that shortens up the connection that we have to food and that one of the things that really differentiates New Zealand as a producer is the is that idea of provenance so that none of us live more than 100 kilometres from a farm or um, a vineyard. And so in and of itself, when people talk about what's New Zealand's food story, for me, New Zealand's food story is about provenance. It's that closeness to source. And so all of those ideas came together for me in this idea of Yellow Brick Road and taking those who catch closer to those who cook. It, it was a little ahead of the um, sustainability conversation in that we knew what happy pigs looked like, we knew about free-range eggs, but a sustainable fishing story was just starting to form. And now you see amazing companies in this space, Gravity Fishing down the bottom of the South Island, you've got um, Tora Collective over the hill there. And you can follow those guys from dawn till dusk where they go and see how they catch and what they catch and have access to their product. And that was part of the intention of Yellow Brick Road, is to really open up that idea of knowing your fishermen mm. or fisherwoman. Mm. Not many fisherwomen. Mm. <laughs> And so earlier we talked about your time, or well, very briefly, as CEO of Cornell, which is a role that you've been in for, for the last sort of five to six years. Um, and for those who don't know, Cornell is owned by Wakatū Incorporation at Te Tauihu, and it's a, a Wakatū Incorporation in turn is owned by many thousands of whānau from mm. that region. Um, so it's very much a, a Māori business. 
um, focused on, on food and beverage. Um, and in an article I wrote with some other uh, academics here at Te Hiringawaka, we actually quoted you in that capacity as Kono CEO uh, because you were talking about how it's working to not a five or ten year time horizon but a 400 year time horizon. Um, and in the article we were saying that there's potentially a really valuable management lesson here for all businesses, particularly thinking in terms of sustainability, this idea of thinking in, in much longer time horizons than they're used to or perhaps comfortable with. Um, from your experience, I'm kind of curious to hear, like what kind of things do you think Māori businesses and organisations can teach the world at large about how to do business in this day and age? Well, I think the lessons go both ways, but from, from, from a Māori business standpoint, what we really I guess rest on is the idea that you carry all of the time with you responsibilities and so while I was in the role at Kono as our chief executive we also have a whakapapa connection to Wakatu so we're owners of Wakatu and then I found myself in the role of CEO which is sort of the ultimate owner operator model but we do have 4,000 owner whānau sitting in behind Wakatu which is easily 20-30,000 people we don't actually know the full number and so, so it was an amazing opportunity, but it came with great responsibility as a Māori business. And so for me to um, really think about what was the best values-led business model that we could um, put in place. And I certainly didn't put that in place uh, independently. Wakatū has been uh, in existence since 1977. And so I really just stepped into the shoes of um, our tūpuna and I stepped into the shoes of the leaders who had been there before, some of whom are still there now. And really just tried to recognise, as we do in Māori business, that we're here for a minute in time and that it is our responsibility to preserve and enhance our taonga or our treasures for the benefit of future generations. And so you need to make the right decisions now that enable that to happen. And so when you use that as your wayfinder on a day-to-day basis, what might have been difficult decisions become very, very easy. How will you look after your people? How will you look after your place? You know, how will you move around the world in representation of both people in place? And so all of those things take on a clarity that I think I see non-Māori businesses seeking to achieve, uh, which is great because, you know, we don't, we don't own the idea of thinking intergenerationally. We're just baked that way. <laughs> and so it comes very naturally to us in that space. But I think that good businesses should all be thinking intergenerationally. Because everything has a has a halo effect or not if you don't treat it in the right way. How do you kind of encourage that on a broader scale, especially beyond the Māori context where, as you say, so much of that way of thinking is just embedded in there and baked into it? How do you kind of encourage that way of thinking about business Generally, because in that article we wrote that I, I talked with you about, you know, we did get some strong emails from business owners and members of the public saying it's all well and good to talk in these about these aspirational goals and being sustainable, but at the end of the day, we need to make money, we need to provide for our, you know, put food on the table and that kind of thing. So I'm just kind of curious about if you have ideas about or thoughts on how we can kind of encourage that approach to business on a broader scale. I, don't, I have lots of thoughts about it, actually. <laughs> and we, we had those. In the, when we started putting together our plans within Kono Makatu about how were we going to be those good ancestors, we had to really stop for a minute and think, well, we, we have the luxury of our scholarship programs and we have the luxury of doing all of the things that we do uh, for our whanau uh, because we are a successful commercial entity. 
And so when you do choose a certain track of business, and we are doing this increasingly, i.e. we wish to be um, a tikanga-led regenerative agriculture business, and that is a fundamental change in the way that you do business, and there's a cost to that, if you consider it a cost. You, you know, the, I guess the cliche answer to that is it's also an investment. And they're cliches usually for a reason, and that is that, that they're true, they come from a true place. And I think that you will always value what you prioritise. And so if it is a priority for you to care for your soil, care for your land, uh, care for your water and care for your people in a way that ensures that you are genuinely a sustainable business, then you will do so. You will find a way. And I, and I don't mean that to sound sort of naive and twee. And it doesn't have to happen in the first five minutes. That's part of the answer. You need... I think when we set about setting some of our targets within Kono, there's two options when you go down the sustainability route. Um, well, there's actually probably about 200, but a couple of options around you know how you set your targets is that you either wait until you're doing everything and then you tell everyone, or you tell everyone what you're going to do and then you do double time to get there. And we chose the latter. So you know we made statements about our relationship to the why, to water, and we made statements about um, zero waste and um, carbon emissions and so forth and and we've set a plan. And I'm involved equally at the warehouse group, and that's the process that we are running through at the moment. You can't wait until you get everything right because there just is not that utopic state in anyone's future. So you need to make a commitment to being good and a commitment to being better and then make a plan for that to happen. One of the things that's kind of interesting to see in conversations about Māori business is we often talk about this multicultural country that is Aotearoa, comprised of all these sort of different histories and people with different whakapapa, um, as though it can be cleanly divided into Māori and, and non-Māori and that the, these things exist, uh, you know, as almost very separate cultures and ideas. Um, but I think we're seeing now that, you know, all of this is becoming a lot more blurred and mixed in um, in recent times. And I'm curious to s- if you have any reflections on how you've seen that kind of cultural mix, mixing and exchange play out in your own business or entrepreneurial experiences? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I guess it's the, really the genesis of Oho. So I have seen it play out both personally. I mean, I have a beautiful 16-year-old Samoan Māori. Turns out in the weekend my mum showed me her ancestry DNA. She's 49% Irish. So, you know, I have this beautiful, um, you know, young Samoan Māori a um, little bit of Irish daughter, and all of her peers are built that way. So they are young and brown and beautiful and strong and diverse and open, and nothing shocks them. And I love seeing that, and it is so representative of, of I think, future Aotearoa. And there's some growing pains as we get to that point, but that's okay as well. So Oho came about because I had seen, you know, Kono exist in the world where a Māori brand, a Māori story built on legacy, but then we went to the world who had no idea who Māori were, you know, kind of unique and interesting, but what did, what was that all about? And so you end up telling beautiful Māori stories to them and bringing you in, them into your world. But it reminded you that we don't exist in a bubble. We can't. We cannot exist as, as a nation with two parallel races being run because it, it, it simply doesn't work very well that way. And so Oho came to life because my business partner and I, Tabitha, had travelled around the world, worked in big brands, big markets, big stories, but we're both very committed to Te Ao Māori and its place within Aotearoa, its, its equal place and, and valued place within Aotearoa. 
And oho means to, in te reo Māori, means to awaken or to enliven. And so we set about creating this business to work with all businesses, with our Indigenous hardwiring and our Indigenous lens to help businesses and brands bring out the best of themselves, bring out their story, you know, really come to life. Now, it's not making those businesses Māori, but to your question earlier about how do you do that, how do you take those Māori values and that Māori way of thinking and infuse it into um, into non-Māori spaces, it, it's a mindset. You know, we don't, as I said, we don't, we don't own the sentiment of being kaitiaki. We don't own the sentiments of being pono and f- or, or, or of showing manaki. We own the words and we have a special relationship to the words, but the sentiment themselves um, are people principles, good people principles. And so oho really works double time to, in the way that we think about things, to bring those stories, to, to bring those brands to life in a really great context. Now, some of them are Māori, some of them aren't, um, but it's a bridge between mātauranga and modernity, we would say, or indigeneity and innovation, and it really provides that that glue, if you like, in that middle context for businesses and brands and the ways of thinking that we find natural and that others are just kind of working out what that is for them. You know, they know that they want to you know, show manaki to their customers and they want to show manaki to people that they interact with, but it's finding the right words and story to go along with that. And so Oho is quite a recent venture for you, right? Yeah, like the last five minutes. <laughs> you know, I talk about it like it's been here forever. Um, but no, I stepped out of Cornwall only two months ago. Right. Uh, so it, it's um, it's been... You know, big change, and this is a services business. This isn't a product business. You know, I've always, as you said, I've always been in fish or other bits and pieces, and I still do that with my governance hats on. So I stay close to to fish and red meat and a couple of other bits and pieces in that space. I'll never really leave food. You know, food is my love. Um, but Oho uh, is a really amazing ride to be on at this time of life. And I think part of it as well is that New Zealand has immense social license internationally. It, off the back of us, um, I think, and a number of others around the world do too, our response to COVID. And so when a nation has such high social licence, what do you do with all of that? My, the business in me says, you've got to capitalise on that. You've got to commercialise that position as a safe provider and producer of food and beverages because we're good people, we make good products, and people should pay a lot of money for them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so one of the well, the second second to last question, really. Um, I mean, I have the privilege of having this corridor with you today because you are one of our distinguished alumni for 2021. And the only way you really get to be in that group is through being very, very successful. Um, and one of the things I research is the sort of mental relationship that people have with their professional success and achievement. And I'm really curious to hear... How would you describe your own mental relationship with your success? What do you kind of make of everything you've been able to do in your life and career so far? I think for me, it's about relativity. It's about just keeping yourself in check because you're right, I have enjoyed lots of really amazing accolades and moments in my life that have celebrated um, as a starting point me or what I might have done but I am completely cognizant and will tell you if given even a glimmer of an opportunity that it's not about me and you know you you will know the whakatauki about success not ever being that of the individual it's always that of the collective and it is 
that is the that is the way that I rationalise anything that comes to me is that there's absolutely no way that I would be able to be in that position were it not for my whanau, um, my incredibly patient and supportive husband and daughter. Um, you know, without my siblings, it's it, you know, pick any group that's in my life, and they're the reason you get to enjoy those moments. And I recently um, took up the opportunity to get back into, um, I guess, life with our hapu and with our marae at Katahiku, um, just down the road from your own. <laughs> and and I have jumped into being the secretary for our marae committee. And it's those kind of relativities. You know, I I can chair, you know, our largest iwi-owned fishing entity, and 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 that whilst um, daunting is, is is a great opportunity, and you and you, you can hold your own, or the APEC Business Advisory Council, and you know, be in meetings with ministers and the prime minister, and so on and so forth. But it's being at Amarai every fourth Sunday, taking the minutes, that is almost infinitely more difficult and challenging but rewarding than any of those experiences because that's your whakapapa and that's your legacy and that's your responsibility. And my trick is how do you not wade into the, you know, how to be like blast into the middle of it and try to, you know, be a part of everything because I'm not there all of the time. And so it's just making that reconnection in a way that's meaningful and appropriate and respectful um, and enduring so that that's actually not quite as difficult for my daughter and my nieces and nephews. So it's just about relativity, Ben. You've just got to keep yourself in check and recognise how you find yourself in certain places uh, and really respect the people that put you there. Awesome. It's interesting, yeah, to hear that. I mean, because a lot of the times I've asked a lot of people that question as part of for research purposes, not that this is, <laughs> but a lot of the time what they respond with is sort of like individual qualities, you know, and, and or experiences that they've had in their life um, and to see you there sort of talk about I guess being the really just a manifestation of tipuna and whanau um, is a really cool take on it so one last question to finish off um, I thought it would be interesting one to sort of ask maybe a little bit lighter uh, what's a question that no one ever asks you in these kind of interviews because I know from my own homework that you've done quite a few of them um, but that you really wish they would ask you I would love to ask me um, what <laughs> it's like, I've actually thought about this. Um, I would love to be asked, like, what else would you be like if okay. you could come back next life? And and unsurprisingly, I've also thought about this. Um, honestly, I would come back as a total kapahaka queen. <laughs> I'm such a kapahaka wannabe. I'm so useless, you know, and I mean beyond useless. There's not even a category to describe me. But I'm presently sitting in an office full of people, Maori, real native. Um, beautiful singers and they'll routinely kind of just pick up a guitar and throw out some waiata and I'm sitting there just feeling so inadequate um, <laughs> but you know I would come back and I would have reo on tap and I would you know because I think for me in all seriousness that's a real unlock you know I'm part of that generation who don't have it um, and a number of my friends have taken the time to take a whole year out too sometimes, and many more, to, to get back to that place. Because, it, you know, and I, it's kind of crippling not to have it. It's a whole part of yourself that is just locked up a little bit. So, uh, you know, if I was a kapaka queen, clearly I would be a reo ninja. So that's me. Oh, 
Kia ora, kia kue, Rachel. Thanks so much for making the time to come and chat with us today. And ngā mihi nunui anō kia kue mō for being one of our distinguished alumni for 2021. Kia ora. Kia ora, ngā mihi kia kue. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stephen Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere rā.